Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. This week's guest is Harini Nagendra, Professor of Sustainability at Azim Premji University in Karnataka, India, whose work takes a particular focus on the evolving relationship between people and nature in Indian cities. She is the author of two books, Nature in the City, Bengaluru in the Past, Present and Future, and Cities and Canopies, the Trees in Indian Cities. We explored the way that ancient and more recent human activity helped shape the country's ecology, and in particular, the way that cities are informed by the need to manage scarce water resources, but also how the particular particularities of Indian culture have lent a deeper everyday connection with and understanding of nature to their residents. There were some great little insights here, such as how our preference for fruiting and scented trees influence the kinds of natural spaces that developed in certain areas of certain individual cities, the way that the need to overcome water scarcity has shaped Bangalore's ecology, and in particular the role of social uh, social citizen movements rather than municipal authorities in driving improvements across the uh, across the country. It's all really, really fascinating stuff. We talked, of course, about the impact of the pandemic in India and what obstacles and opportunities it creates to boosting nature in Indian cities, especially in the face of the already real evidence of climate change. But we began by talking about the recent and ancient changes in Bangalore, which Harini's been working on for um, for several years and how these have shaped the uh, the nature of the city. As ever, hope you enjoy the podcast. If you uh, if you'd like to interact with us on Twitter at Making Good Pod, and always appreciate a review on iTunes if you feel so moved. I hope you enjoy. Harini, hello. Thanks ever so much for joining me this morning, afternoon as it is for you. Could I ask you to begin um, by introducing yourself and your work, but um, in, in particular the area that you're working in, Karnataka? Sure, Lee, and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I am uh, a professor at Azim Premji University in Karnataka and uh, I teach sustainability. I do a lot of research on uh, how people and nature broadly interact. So that's sort of broadly defined as my interest area. And I've been working for about 25 years or so on uh, different aspects of this in uh, different forests in a lot of parts of India. But for the past several years, a large focus area of mine has been cities in India. Because India is urbanizing so fast. So to understand how people and nature relationships evolve in cities in India. And uh, as I'm based in Karnataka, a lot of my focus has been in Bangalore and the state of Karnataka. So a little bit of background on what Karnataka is. Karnataka is one of the southern Indian states and has a number of different kinds of ecologies. So there's the coast and that has a particular kind of ecology. Then there are the mountains of the western Ghats, which are extremely biodiverse one of India's biodiversity hotspots. And then there's the dry uh, areas of North Karnataka, which is extremely dry and uh, almost arid in some sense. So there are these different ecologies. And Bangalore sits somewhere in the center, Bangalore being the capital city of Karnataka, which is where I'm based and it's my hometown. And uh, if you look at the city of Bangalore, it's it's an odd, unusual city because it's been settled for millennia. I mean, there are old uh, stone megalithic stone tombs so you know there were people here for a very long time but it's really semi-arid in terms of there's there's no large structures no large rivers no permanent water bodies so it's been a puzzle to understand how did people settle here why did they choose to settle in this place people normally settle in places where there are water where there's water right so it's an interesting city because if you look at this city and across this holds true for much of peninsula south india People settled in places and systematically uh, sort of quote-unquote improved the ecology from their perspective. And what I mean by improved the ecology is wherever they found depressions in the ground, they created these, they scooped out the mud and created these lakes or tanks, which were rainwater harvesting structures, around which then they planted trees and grew orchards and did agriculture and did rice cultivation and then network these lakes so that when you had a, a flood or a good rainfall water would overflow from one lake higher up in the chain to another lake lower up lower down in the chain so this really changed the ecology of the region but also helped to foster the growth of villages to market towns to cities so it's a very it's a it's an interesting place with a mix of these different landscapes and very fast growing city, one of India's fastest growing cities, well known globally, I think 
because of a lot of uh, software and backend IT and uh, BPO companies moving to India. Uh, you, you, I mean, you might know that the the word Bangalore has also become part of the lexicon now, right? Because of these com- companies moving. So Bangalore is my city, and a lot of the motivation that I had to work on the city was to understand as an ecologist, Indian cities have traditionally been really neglected. So how can you understand the ecology of a city in India, which is very closely related to the society and the culture of cities in India? And you can't really transfer Western ideas to understand how to govern these places. So that's been a large focus of mine in the past 10, 12 years. I'm really keen to delve into this story that you've begun there to tell us about the ways that human activity on the land has shaped its um, its ecology in some subtle and I guess not so subtle ways and also definitely to spend some time exploring the indigenous knowledges you just mentioned to see what we might learn I guess not just about how nature can help us live better but how it can ground us better and make us more respectful of indigenous culture and how we react with them. But just before we do, I wonder if we could take a moment to talk about the role that nature's playing in modern India and how it's being managed and cared for. Sure, and that's a fascinating question because so if you look at India, it's one of the world's fastest urbanizing countries, right? And uh, for instance, we have three of the world's largest cities, you know, ten world's largest cities. We have three of the ten world's la- fastest urbanizing cities, and uh, very dense populations. So how do they grow and survive in these cities? It's been uh, interesting to look at these changes. Some of the sit, uh, culture of cities, many cities across the country, if you look at uh, Delhi or Hyderabad or Chennai or Bangalore, this culture of water, rainwater harvesting in number of ways, you know, you had open wells, you had these smaller tanks, you had these larger lake systems, a number of different kinds of very locally developed uh, systems to use water very sustainably over time. And so that's been indigenous in there for a long time. The experience with trees, however, has been very different. And a lot of uh, what you see in terms of green Indian cities, some of them are extremely green, like uh, parts of uh, central Delhi, Luchin's Delhi, as we call it, or Bangalore, large trees uh, with tree-lined avenues. That culture comes very much from the colonial aspects of these cities because of the governance largely by British in British India. But also if you look at Goa from the Portuguese or different, you know, some some parts of India where the French also governed these cities. A lot of colonial background where they came in and planted very large trees, most of them from outside uh, India in these cities that were where the ecology was very different. So they've systematically greened colonial parts of many cities in Bangalore and uh, Delhi and many other cities. So you have this complex mix of these lakes and water systems that were sort of indigenously produced and these trees that came from outside. What's been happening uh, in the past, I'd say about 20 or 30 years since India opened up and there's been uh, economic liberalization and a huge emphasis on the growth of cities, smart cities, infrastructure development in cities. A lot of that has happened at the expense of a lot of this uh, ecology. So if you look at the Yamuna River or the Ganga River, you'll see that they're extremely polluted now. If you look at trees, I think hundreds of thousands of trees have been felled in Bangalore over the past 20 years. Uh, So many that we don't even have numbers of these. So there's a lot of loss of ecology and ecosystem function in uh, cities across India. And that is really clear. The one sign of hope in recent times has been uh, a huge amount of mass-based Uh, sort of, uh, I'd say, action by people. So it could be school and college networks, it could be non-governmental organizations, it could be mass-based environmental movements, which use social media also very effectively, but ground field-based protests very effectively. And uh, because of this, you really see, uh, I'd say, a lot of uptick in terms of urban awareness of the importance of ecosystems and the urban environment. We have air pollution. Indian cities have now overtaken China, I think, very clearly in the sort of dubious record of being some of the most polluted cities in the world. But uh, the action really is coming from uh, public interest litigations by civic groups, by various uh, non-governmental groups. The court is taking a very positive role. So it's been this uh, this pressure on the government to act that seems to be much more uh, much more influential in in any positive hopes that we have for the ecological future of Indian cities.
I'm interested in what you said there about the introduction of large tree species. Is there any evidence that suggests whether or not that was, um, well, what the drivers were for that? Was it um, aesthetic um, reminder of home or was there, um, was it maybe a, like an early um, uh, iteration of this um, this notion that we're more familiar with now of, um, of vegetated cities being much cooler the you know the, the trees that throw shade the um the vegetated surfaces that don't reflect heat back is there any um is there any evidence to suggest what was um what the underlying motivations were so it's mixed uh, if you look at indian rulers for instance uh, they would plant trees like tamarind and jackfruit and mango so fruiting species and ficus species of various kinds some of these were indigenous some of these like the coconut or tamarind have been around for thousands of years see so you could I mean, almost call them indigenous, naturalized, certainly. But when the British came in, uh, there's a lot of literature on the British, especially because most Indian colonial cities were governed by them. They brought in species from across the world in uh, the way they did in Africa and many other parts of the world also. Uh, motivations seem to have been several. There's definitely an aspect of wanting the city to be cooler. And in Bangalore in the 1850s, you have uh, records of uh, people complaining that the city used to be much cooler when they first came in, but the climate is changing. This is the 1850s and it's becoming very hot and you don't need fireplaces in this uh, old uh, British homes anymore. And so they're trying to plant trees to make the environment certainly much more cool and comfortable for them. So that's one big part of the motivation. But there's also a big part of a focus on the aesthetic. And the aesthetic is interesting. So they have a palette of species to choose which are worldwide, which means that they can get in flowering species that are flowering at different times of the year. At least in Bangalore, we know what that is exactly what they did. So there was a German horticulturist called Krumbiegel, whom uh, the Mysore uh, government and the British government brought in. And he was very influential in uh, planting uh, trees following an Indian idea of... So we had a Sanskrit poet called Kalidasa, and in one of his poems, he his plays, he talks about this idea of Ritu Samhara. So kings had gardens and the gardens had cereal blossoming. So Ritu Samhara means that at every season, you had a set of flowering trees. And so it looked beautiful the year round. And they followed that idea in the kinds of trees that they selected, certainly for Bangalore, but also for many colonial cities. So Krumbigal also went to Baroda and uh, worked there for a long time. And uh, so this is the idea that you got trees that were flowering and looked pretty. And certainly if you look at the Indian aesthetic, the Indian aesthetic of trees is uh, a lot around scent. So you would have flowering trees, but many of these flowers would be white or light yellow, but certainly very strongly perfumed. The aesthetic was not as visual. And uh, there was a lot of emphasis on fruiting trees. But the British aesthetic was very different. It was, as I said, flowers and therefore it's recreational as well as shade. A lot of it also deals with the fact that, I mean, many Indian homes, especially the Hindu homes for, for sure, but many other religions in India, would uh, have a small altar at home where you did you know, some bit of worship of the God in your daily life. And that would be with flowers and typically with scented flowers. So a lot of, so the aesthetic around scent is, is really strong. And then women, mo, you know, most uh, Indian street corners, definitely in cities, you would have uh, flower garlands being sold where the woman of the house would pick up a garland early morning or uh, the previous night and uh, put it on her hair. So this is again, and it's ideally going to be something with a smell, with a perfume. Were these, um, have the, um, the aesthetic and um, uh, kind of functional benefits, if you like, of the urban canopy in India always been equally um, or ever been equally distributed um, either in, in the past in pre, um, in pre-colonial, uh, um, during the colonial or, 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 or subsequently since, in the, since independence with the rush to urbanisation? Short answer, no. And it's been getting increasingly unequal over time. But even if you looked at old Bangalore, let's take Bangalore as an example, what you had was the British colonial part of the city, which had these wide avenues with trees on both sides. And in the Indian part of the city, what they call the native part of the city, narrow streets, a lot of coconuts and a lot of monkeys. So in fact, uh, the old British used to call Bangalore the metropolis of monkeys. And so very different. You didn't have the space for these large trees. But what you had was fruiting trees. You'd have a lot of drumstick, for instance. And uh, over time, that inequality has only grown because if you look at the density of Bangalore today, a lot of the low income settlements have practically no access to trees 
and uh, what where they do have trees uh, in some places you, it's very interesting to see what they choose to plant a lot of drumstick is planted and drumstick is of course now made in big as a miracle food worldwide but it's been traditionally used in india for a long time because you can also cook with the leaves along with waiting for the pods you know so this gives them greens which are very important for nutrition but if you walk into a low income settlement in bangalore it's amazing to see sometimes there's such tiny cramped places but they grow pots with all kinds of uh, you know plants things that they use for worship things that they use for face masks things that they use for beauty aids health aids and for cooking and this could be in paint buckets in battery cans in an old steel utensil or aluminum utensils which has a hole in it all kinds of or even just a, a big tarpaulin you know sheet that you've uh, converted into a bag and they get water from somewhere and they grow this from somewhere so you can clearly see the importance of greenery in these settlements but the lack complete lack of it so you know it, it, it is extremely unequal in terms of access i was in vietnam last year and i know singapore gets um a lot of acclaim for the um for the greenery of the city but the thing that really that i really enjoyed particularly about ho chi minh city saigon was that every single kind of property of of um of all different kind of um scales and classes commercial public large small humble um opulent all of them had space um for um for plants for growing um and and see and growing and tending plants seemed to be very much a part of the um a part of the culture there as much as i could tell without you know speaking the language and having someone to an interlocutor to um to kind of explain to me to like explain and give me more um kind of em- embellish my um my my first Im- impressions when i when i spoke with um with someone involved in the um uh in in the uh, bosco verticale in um in in milan um about about this they were saying that the um that the climate probably explained it that there was just that in in that climate which is wet and warm there would be um it would be very easy to grow plants i wasn't i wasn't completely convinced by that and now i'm and now hearing you i'm wondering um i'm wondering if that um if 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 that if that really holds up would you would you, is there is there other parallels would you say in um in the indian experience the everyday indian experience absolutely i mean the bangalore that i grew up in it was very much like that everybody had a small patch of land and everybody grew something and uh, now you can see that culture changing if you look at apartment complexes these days not all but many of the new apartments uh, don't have space for greenery and if they do they want to grow you know turf grass make what we call mexican or thai grass i don't even know where that stuff comes from or uh, you know very ornamental plants very landscape the kind that you trim you don't actually want flowering or fruiting species because it looks messy you want something that is neat and clean that you spray with pesticides but that is a very different aesthetic from the old bangalore aesthetic which was exactly like you mentioned part of it is the ease of growing certainly things grow well in these contexts you know it is the subtropics and it's humid and it's easy to grow things but a lot of it is the fact that everybody grew certain things you know everybody had a tulsi plant um, um, which is the holy basil and so most houses would have a tulsi plant in your house that's part of your everyday life like i said the worship but also it's something that you put in teas when you have a bad throat or everybody has lemongrass or everybody has a certain kind of there's a white uh, flower called nandi batlu which is um, very much used in daily worship in uh, bangalore in most homes and you can also uh, make an ash out of that and use it for your eyes so you know it's it's there's so much that is part of the daily life that is just around you and uh, so i think this is very much part of the culture it's interesting isn't it because what what you're describing is um is a is a deeper connectedness it's not it <laughs> this is something which may be discovered by um you know by science as ben- or confirmed as beneficial um by scientific investigation but what we have what we have here is almost a folk knowledge of um of uh of things that are things that are good for us or things which are, um, are productive which are useful um useful for us and having them in small amounts uh close by um 
it, it, it means many things. Like you say, there are there are ailments that can be cured, but it also uh, means that you're traveling less far. You need um, you maybe need a vehicle less um, to um, to get around to use um, to use some of the things um, that are that are um, that are required. There's it seems to me that there's um, this is um, an important these experiences, these daily experiences of people from different parts of the world where we are really important uh foundation for ways of thinking and ways of 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 being that we need to um that we need to get to in order to moderate yeah i mean if i can just uh, give you one quick example so there was this uh, which stays with me all every time that i think of it is uh, there was this place that i went to so it's a slum close to a lake in bangalore and the first time i went there was this roadside very tiny plot that this woman had you know with the thorny uh, things and a lovely little kitchen garden just on the road went back uh, two years later and the garden was gone the road had taken over so i went in to talk to her and she had six spots so the road expanded and took away her garden and she had six spots all with this holy basil the tulsi and i said why do you have six spots with this one plant you know if water scarce place is scarce so she said no i prepared the pots to make to replace the garden that i lost and i went away to visit my married daughter but when i came back the seeds had blown into the pots and she said this is like a guest that came in and how can i turn away and guest even whether it was invited or not i don't do that with my garden i'm practical if i had six pots with tulsi i would take out five and grow something else but here is somebody who has nothing but has that connect with greenery you know it's a very different aesthetic it's a very giving a very connected way of looking i mean like we can prove this with statistics we've done this study where of all the different uh, types of habitats in bangalore whether you look at parks or lakes or low income settlements or high end uh, apartment complexes the slums have the largest percentage of native species so 70% of the species that you find in slums are native you know and that's really high it's completely different aesthetic than the rest of bangalore 70% that that's remarkable um so you mentioned about the um uh about the um the difficulty of 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 getting water has this led to um to people trying to find ways of of planting species which need less water or is it um is it um you know even more remarkable because they they they're going out of their way to try to find small amounts of water when uh, when water is a, a such a scarce resource in um, in those in those slums in those um in those um like peri urban areas there should have been but unfortunately there isn't water however is a, so finding enough water is a huge problem now if i look at bangalore for instance the peripheral part of bangalore doesn't get piped water in i mean we have pipes but they don't come in from the kaveri river which the central part of bangalore gets the rest of bangalore gets waters from what we call tankers so that's water pumped in from the ground so either from wells or borewells and brought to places and put into tanks and then piped to different apartments or homes and that means you're really dependent on the groundwater and the groundwater is depleting at a very alarming rate so if i think of the past 15 years the price of a tanker has about tripled and also in sometimes in the summer you just don't find tankers they're just not available and uh, with that you can really see that people are very aware very alarmed about this and a lot of the interest of uh, community groups in lake revival so a lot of lakes in peripheral bangalore have been revived because of environmental movements and a lot of action by local community groups you can see so much of that is driven by the awareness of the fact that groundwater is depleting and you need these lakes to come back to replenish the groundwater supply so that's on the positive side on the negative side you f- also find that you know so many of the place people that we interviewed cite overwhelmingly two reasons for uh, reducing their gardens and the first reason is uh, lack of space because they have more people in the house and uh, they want to expand their uh, house size but the second reason is a lack of water so they simply can't afford to maintain a garden anymore because of the amount of water that you need and so that that drives a lot of change now that should actually influence planting as you're saying you know should you try and plant certain kinds of species that don't need as much water but unfortunately that hasn't happened there's still an obsession as uh, as people grow wealthier of having more lawns and more manicured spaces especially in apartment complexes and that's or in corporate campuses and that's something that somehow we don't seem to be able to fix 
Yeah, so this is an important um, cultural question, which I think reaches um, well beyond um, well beyond um, Bangalore, Karnataka, India. Um, certainly, it's something that we see here in London. How to get um, people, organisations, to um, to think differently about um, about more ma- manicured, um, monoculture, um, natural spaces. Um, what what what? How is that being articulated over um, over there, and 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 what are the um, what 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 are the practices that you and planting types that you're um, that you're trying to encourage people to use? I so the one uh, movement I wouldn't even call it a movement, but uh, at least some good people talking about it is the idea of bringing back uh, old ideas of planting in cities. And when I said old ideas, I was referring to the fact that. On Indian roadsides for centuries, the certain kinds of trees were planted. They were either ficus trees or they were tamarind or they were jackfruit or mango or certain kinds of trees which were fruiting. And I think we need to get back to that idea of multifunctionality. If you have a city, you have scarce space, you have scarce water, you have scarce labor. I mean, everything's scarce. And uh, so what you need is to sort of maximize bang for the buck. You need a lot of shade. You need wide canopies. You need trees with roots that go deep. My, many of these exotic species that we get from the outside, like uh, the gulmohar, uh, Delonyx regia, which so this is a very you know it has spreading buttress roots. One rain and it falls, or uh, you know the the roots go and dig up the plumbing, and or the pavement. And so you need certain kinds of roots, deep rooted trees, large canopy trees, trees with fruits that give you shade, that uh, attract birds, that will not fall easily in a bad rain. And so you need to go back to this idea of multifunctionality, and we don't have that. I mean, you're very right. If you look at many apartment complexes, many gated communities, many corporate campuses in India, you they're characterized by the royal palm, and the royal palm comes because of the idea of wanting to look like the Californian IT campus, and the Californian IT campus gets its royal palms from the idea of Mexico or you know the the idea of sort of sitting in the tropics, and we are the tropics. We have our native palm trees. You know, why would you get the royal palm? It's just so it's this strange loop of global influences that just does not work in local context. Is there the capacity to document um, the stock of um, of living assets that you've that you've got and uh, and 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 discharge a, you know adequate care regimes for them in Indian cities at the moment? There's certainly the expertise. I mean, there are a number of really experienced naturalists in different parts of the country who really know their trees and understand this idea of multifunctionality. Now, the question is, are we doing enough monitoring, scientific monitoring? Unfortunately, not. You know, so you should have some kind of database in most Indian cities, or at least even one Indian city, which tells you what you have planted, when you planted it, how long it survived, why it died or fell or etc., and so you know what works well in what environments, right? We don't have any such data. We don't have any such systems. So we are a really data poor place. We're working on the sort of experience. The reason I started my Bangalore work, for instance, was the idea was to document changes in Bangalore city over time to understand how things have changed. But as it uh, stands, we spent almost four to five years just collecting baseline data because there was no existing data. And we started this in 2006. Bangalore was called the IT capital of India. You know, what kind of an IT capital is this when you can't put together a spatial infrastructure to track the trees? So the the situation in terms of data is very bad, but I'd say the knowledge systems are really good. I mean, I think so much of the focus in Indian cities now, because we have infrastructure expansion, has been on cutting the old trees and with the idea that you could replace a tree by planting two or five or ten. And with that comes a lot of justification that many of these trees are anyway old and you know the the old forester's idea of an over mature tree which only holds for timber but uh, i mean there is what, what do you call an over mature tree in the indian context anything that's above 40 years it, it's uh, considered over mature and the the justification often in official documents is that you can just replace it planting a tree or two but as you said the benefits they provide only really start when the tree is 20 30 years old I talked in episode seven with um, with my guests um, about the um, about the role that um, remote sensing might play. Is that something that in, um, in you know like in an advanced um, city like Bangalore might be uh, might be feasible? So remote sensing would be fabulous. We have trying we are looking at Google Earth Engine to do some kind of uh, semi automated tracking of uh, urban growth in Indian cities. 
but there is a lot more that one needs to use you know lidar data advanced uh, satellite images uh, high resolution satellite images for tracking and none of this is i mean this can be really put together very well but it requires some i think significant effort in something like this yeah and 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 resources do you get the sense that the um that the uh the govern uh, government the, the 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 relevant authorities are starting to see the value um or understand the argument when when it's articulated about the um the intersecting values of um of um of trees and and, and green infrastructure for um for the for urban populations you know the 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 the, the natural capital um, and also the health, the significant health benefits. So there is a lot of talk about it. Certainly, many national frameworks of various kinds are now beginning to talk about the need to plant trees in cities and to restore water bodies. So there is that. But in terms of, if you look at the actual, you know, specifics of what's happening in many places, it turns out to be business as usual, which means uh, cutting down large trees and uh, expanding roads and infrastructure uh, areas and not much of a focus on water body restoration there is some but that happens with again a focus on aesthetics so just to give you an example lake restoration is excellent and it should be done but it should be done in a way that also maintains the wetland upstream of the lake because that's what is the sponge or the the recharge point of the lake and the part that cleans up the sewage that comes in with um, you know most indian cities but instead what you have is most of those wetlands get drained and converted into landscaped areas or car parks or ornamental gardens so in that sense you know you're not thinking ecologically about restoration you're not thinking ecologically about planting uh, you're thinking in terms of numbers so how many trees do you plant even the the language in many of these documents they talk about beautification of uh, these parks and lakes and the word beautification you know can set off alarm bells because that's exactly what they mean by adding a lot of uh, park benches or uh, stone uh, uh, pitching of the lake you know which is very different from what you would want ecologically for this place to be could we um circle back around at this point we're talking about um places benches public spaces like parks could we circle back around to um to um to the um to what you were talking about before your work um looking at the um the intersection of people's experiences of of place of natural um natural places could we talk a little bit more about your um your work on um on how culture and and um and memory have affected have, have influenced and affected the um the nature of indian cities absolutely so one of the things um, that always fascinated me about looking at indian cities especially being from bangalore and seeing this change is i know how people used to talk about nature you know so my parents generation aunts uncles people with gardens and i see how people talk about ecology many of the people now and you can see that disconnect or a, i'd say shift in perception but when i say shift in perception it's because of the so, a certain socio economic class if you go one step uh, you know to people who are uh, for instance uh, much uh, have much less means they tend to live off the land so much more we did the survey very, um, recently on urban foraging and you find so much foraging for plants in sort of wild spaces which are really remnant you know small patches in different parts of the city in the heart of the city you find so many women with that knowledge in lower income settlements who actually harvest you know between 4 to 8 kilos uh, a year and cook various kinds of greens for their families so that knowledge of ecology of wild spaces of knowing what flowers when what to cook at which season which time of the day for what kinds of ailments that's a very different um, aesthetic of ecology and then there's a the spiritual aspect of to me which is a very powerful aspect of uh, keeping ecology alive in indian cities so much of nature is worshiped you know you will still find people in their everyday lives who leave out rice for the crow in the morning or uh, put milk and uh, sugar next to an ant hill or uh, feed the birds or uh, feed a, you know leave some water out for the birds that come in is so much of it is sort of part of the worship culture so you you worship certain kinds of nature but you also think i mean because it, of the idea that there are gods associated or goddesses more often associated with these different lakes so most lakes in the periphery of bangalore have specific goddesses and they're all supposed to be related so there's a family structure and some like wild spaces some like people some like the water and so that also means that certain kinds of plants that are supposed to be the favorites of these goddesses and gods are planted in different places so there's a social ecological memory 
which is also community memory. So it's very much nature as a commons and nature as a culture. And that, I fear for the time that that disappears, because I think when that disappears, we've lost all hope for the Indian city in terms of its ecology. Can I selfishly just ask for a second there's a place um in uh southwest london called southall um there's a big um a big indian um population and um the canal passes through it which is how i i come to um come to know it when i'm moving my um the canal boat back and forth in in london and there's a space where um the local community come down um seems almost every day and leave rice for um for the geese uh canadian geese that uh that come through and and swans swans in particular there are more swans in southall um uh right by where the canal passes the um the uh the main the main thoroughfare with all the restaurants on than i've seen anywhere else um in the uk yeah it is really lovely it's a really lovely spot um and it's interesting because there's um on there are uh online um uh communities of um of boaters in london who um who get frustrated with this experience um because there's um there's a belief that it's not the right kind of food to feed the um to feed the birds is there a taking that taking that aside uh putting that to one side for it for um for a second if i wanted to find out more about um um about the uh that uh, maybe no maybe not the question isn't if i want to find out if i find out more you said that there was um like leaving um food for birds um um as as a tribute for the gods do you, are you aware of something which directly related to swans and geese <laughs> I want to feed this back into the um, to the online to the on, <laughs> the online community. Absolutely, I think that would be interesting to find out. But this much I do know that it was always a tradition in many homes that the first rice of the day, when you you know you ran your pressure cooker in the morning, you got the first rice. You put some rice and ghee out for the birds, whatever birds came. But you would put some out in your garden. And I still have aunts and cousins who do this every morning. And so the idea is you feed, you share, and then you. Yeah, it's an extension. You share with other life, and then you eat. That's lovely. I'm going to um, I'm going to I'm going to feed this back into the um, into the um, online online London boating um, boating community. <laughs> so, so um, uh, what's driving um, changes then at the moment? Um, would you say is it the um, the uh, the economic development as uh, the agenda of um, of the of the middle classes of of of, of the. Uh, of those new developments or is to um do the lower income groups have any say um in the um in the ways in which um which cities are um is, is their culture reflected in the ways in which cities are um are um are seeking to develop themselves so unfortunately not yeah uh, i'd say that if you look at low income settlements almost nobody seems to notice them it's almost, I mean, if you look at the public perception of them, their role to play in ecology, it's very negative. It's uh, talk about uh, people who who pollute the, the lake next to them or people who throw trash and garbage or it's because of them that these areas get spoiled. But if you actually take the trouble to go and talk to them and understand sort of their, uh, their wisdom of and their uh, connection with nature, it's far deeper than ours, I think. There's no sort of that is, I think, unquestionable. But they get completely left out of policy. What seems to drive uh, Indian urbanization is unfortunately not even the middle class, because I'd say the middle class, at least a large section of it these days, is very aware about problems like air pollution and water pollution and uh, the increasing challenges of finding water in Indian cities. So they're really sort of, I think, pro-environmental conservation. It might be recreation focused, but at least they're pro the idea of ecosystem restoration or planting trees. The problem happens because a lot of the development is driven by the political economy of India, which is really the real estate lobbies. And land prices are so high and accelerating so fast that that real estate lobby is you see most of the elected representatives come in some form or backed in some form by that real estate lobby. So that tends to drive a lot of what actually happens. If you look at our plans and legal frameworks, they're pretty strong. And there is a lot of uh, space in there for effective environmental conservation in cities. Uh, but uh, in practice, that doesn't happen. All of these laws are violated or if there's a gray space, something gets pushed through. 
and uh, so yeah city after city you find that it's it's this pressure on on land as real estate and this driving force to think of land as real estate that seems to be reshaping our cities is it the case in um in in india uh, that um that city that the cities are, uh, can learn from each other do you, do you do you see cities learning from each other in the ways that they um that, that they try to balance the um the needs to um to preserve and expand um the natural realm and while, while developing and while um, while densifying i don't see cities learning from each other if you mean municipalities and governance but what i do see which is very hopeful is city movements learning from each other so if you look at uh, over the past i'd say 5 6 years there are a lot of environmental movements in different parts of of indian cities that learn from each other so for instance uh, activist groups in delhi running public interest litigations will take literature from us in bangalore so our academic work in bangalore and put it in delhi courts or uh, groups in pune are working with groups in chennai and learning from them or groups in coimbatore are trying to see what can they offer to the rest of uh, the country in terms of their experiences with restoration so you see a lot of this networking across different environmental restoration groups certainly in cities but also outside cities and i think that's where the hope comes from because if you're one community working with one lake you only have so much clout but if you can learn from each other and quickly figure out how to mobilize people then you really have some some hope and so that that connection i think to me is is more hopeful can we just uh, take a second i don't think i think i've um, gl- um um glided over the um this um process of lake restoration can you just briefly explain to us what's what's involved many of these places uh, like i said like bangalore has has these uh, we used to call them tanks and we call them lakes now but these really water bodies uh, most of which used to be ephemeral so they used to be only in the monsoon season so they they were originally depressions in the ground and people came in and as settlers moved in they scooped out the mud deepened these depressions and created large rainwater harvesting structures some very small some very large and they were networked in uh, topographic gradients so you'd have the largest ones down in the topography and the small ones really uphill or upslope and so as the small ones filled they would drain water into channels that were also scooped out from the ground and connect them into the larger lakes and over time a lot of these have become dry polluted or converted into bus stations malls uh, office places the very few of them that remain but the few that remain are really often in the peri urban parts of the city the city periphery so bangalore is a good example and if you look at uh, lake restoration what that involves is it's usually the municipality involved but uh, the municipality gets into lake restoration and does it effectively if there's a local community involved and that means the local community could uh, help them with uh, designing the plan so for instance there's a lake near my house kaikondrali lake which is uh, something that i was part of uh, a group that worked with the government and we worked with them to redo their plan for restoration so they wanted uh, parking spaces and uh, night lights and boating and we got all of that thrown out we made sure that the wetland was uh, free of uh, human disturbance as much as possible so that because that's a important bird breeding zone so you can get in and influence certain kinds of things in some lakes so as far as possible you try and do this restoration in an ecologically sensitive manner but what it involves is essentially scooping a lot of the silt out because many of these lakes have silted up over time originally they were agricultural communities that lived around this lake so as i said it was seasonal and what would happen is in the summer when it dried up farmers would come in scoop out the silt and take it away which was very useful for agriculture what's happened over time as the as the cities have grown is that they have become sewage filled and not rain filled and so they have water through the year which means they moved from a you know ecologically one regime to another regime but also because of the sewage you have a lot of uh, eutrophic vegetation growing on top and a lot of silt that comes in and no way to scoop this out so this is what restoration would involve scooping out the silt deepening the lake uh, getting the channels which are often blocked by some kind of urban development back in so the rainwater can flow and having some sort of a sewage treatment plant it could be a uh, electricity plant or something that is more natural but cleaning up the sewage so that clean water flows into the lake and so this has happened in a few lakes around bangalore for instance a few lakes in chennai a few lakes in coimbatore different cities largely because of community movements and citizen movements once the municipality typically once they restore these lakes they don't have the money or the uh, infrastructure and the time uh, budgets to 
maintain them so communities take them over and they are involved in the maintenance creating these so they become what we've seen in in this lake that i was talking about for instance kaikondeli lake is it becomes a hub for people to get together and the groups that have met at the lake have then gone on to work in uh, low income schools have gone to work on traffic problems on solid solid waste management issues because they're bright people uh, interested motivated people that have come together and you sort of talk to each other and get to know people and that passion comes through in different contexts so they're also very important community nodes i think not just ecological nodes but nodes of knowledge nodes of community action and this idea of lake restoration has really moved across number of different indian cities in recent years so it's it's really interesting and the and the and the lessons for um for, for the specifics aside that kind of that the spontaneous community cohesion that can come through restor through restoring um through natural spaces i think is something uh, something that could be seeded um far and wide a real a real inspiration you you it sounded to me like you would uh, um that these um uh, this network of um of of tanks of lakes small and large um were initially and are potentially becoming again now uh, um, understood at, at landscape scale. So they've built into them is an understanding of the people that are using them of um, of not just the um, the immediate vicinity, but also the way in which their little their little part of the terrain fits into the to the wider landscape. Has that been carried through to the um, to, through to the restoration, so that people really are really do feel like they're um, they're part of the city is um, is is grounded in a in a network of natural processes it has and it hasn't so i'd say in terms of again uh, city government action it's still not to the state that it should be because most of the it's the way government budgeting works so it's one lake that is cleaned up and the upstream lake and the downstream lake is not attended to and then you know a different part of the city another lake is cleaned up so unless you do this as a network of lakes and you clean up that entire chain you're not going to have success in the long term because if the upstream lake is dirty it's going to send dirty water down to this one you know which so it makes it gets restored and then it goes downhill in in a few years but uh, again because of community effort there are some places so there are there's one lake chain the lake that i was talking about in southwest bangalore the entire chain because of community push was cleaned up by the government and it's still being restored but in a couple of years i'd say there's an there's going to be an entire stretch of seven or eight lakes in that region which is all going to be restored with interconnections alive and vibrant and i think once that happens you can really see how these lakes can be you know you can think of the landscape scale another really good idea which has not yet taken off is uh, the idea of a group of architects and planners in mumbai they call it mumbai on two feet and the idea again is that mumbai it's a very cramped city it doesn't have green spaces how do you get people how do you expand green space networks in mumbai you're not going to throw people away and remove an apartment and create a park but what they're saying is they also have a lot of these channels that link little water bodies and if you cleaned up the channels and had maybe a couple of feet on both sides where people could walk and people could cycle it would solve your traffic problem it would get people you know more out and biking and and walking on the roads and uh, it's mumbai on two feet it's sustainable it's an interaction with ecology it it also makes sure that these canals are healthy so this is something they've been pushing for a while to get uh, embedded into the city's master plan it hasn't happened yet but i'm hopeful that it will happen at some point and i think these are the kinds of seeds of ideas that we need to have taking off yeah. can i ask speaking of the uh, speaking of the international um the international context could i ask like, how how india is placed is it is it an outward looking um country in terms of the in academic and um and and uh, governing framework terms is it um insular outward looking does and if so uh, where does it um where does it learn from where 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 looks to india for um, for, for for leadership and um, on these in these matters oh i'd say there's so the research community in india and I, i'd say in the urban south is growing and uh, certainly in terms of talking to a lot of colleagues who work in south africa or in uh, kenya or in uganda or latin american cities or in the amazon i think there's an increasing network now of several researchers who are saying that if you want to understand cities you must look at the nature culture society relationships in these cities and that nature culture society relationship in many of these cities is very common i mean if you if i'm talking to colleagues in the amazon for instance or colleagues in uh, looking at uganda 
those cities are structured very similarly to indian cities i mean there is the how to put it the the boundary between the urban and the rural is very fluid you have villages inside the city you have urban areas inside villages i mean that that boundary is so completely fluid you have all kinds of livestock in the city you have all kinds of uh, you don't call it organic agriculture but you have so much of uh, of these wild foraging areas for instance or every garden has something that you harvest so there's so many people doing agriculture in the city which is not labeled as organic agriculture but really is in a in a more fundamental way and uh, the the spiritual element i think in so many of these places is so alive the spiritual aspects of nature and uh, animist kind of uh, ways of looking at uh, nature worship so there's a lot of commonality and i think in terms of research networks we now have a lot of research networks moving across these different global south uh, cities in terms of urban governance i would say it's really lagging i don't think i think uh, we still many of these countries try and import their ideas of urban governance from the west so for instance in india it's so much of a focus on smart cities and uh, the idea of the smart city we investigated this in one of our studies in karnataka so there are seven proposed smart cities is so much i idea drawn from a western city context it's built on technology and uh, resettlement of the poor and landscaping and uh, gentrification of uh, green spaces or coastal areas it's just not suited to local contexts and it's uh, an idea you know driven by consulting companies and driven by companies with links outside india so i think we need to be we need to be much more internationally networked but to the right kinds of cities where which can really relate to our context and uh, academically that's happening that's always hopeful maybe the research base is what will really push in form policy in the next decade i i'd be very interested to see how this um uh, discontinuity of um of experience um Un- unfolds based on some of the um some of the people that i've been speaking to recently um it seems to me that the an emerging paradigm a way of thinking about um green infrastructure and the way that our cities need to develop um in terms of um uh, indigenous knowledges historical um historical knowledges um uh, and and methods of um of discharging the need to reintroduce and care for nature into the city is framed around um it's framed around um a kind of public health message feels to me like there's a there's an availability of um of of insight um um in in the things that you've been describing and perhaps experiences from um, from from other cities around the global south that would really feed into this um this um this emerging emerging in paradigm could maybe find a, a back door into um into uh into into some of the the cities in the the global north if we um if we if we might call it that um <clears throat> i wonder um if we could um just um just before we get towards the um towards the uh the the questions that i'd like to wrap up the um the interview with i do i do wonder if we could take a moment to reflect on the um on the uh indian um and bangalorean experience of the um of the of the pandemic um obviously there are a kaleidoscope of um of different kind of um impacts and 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 and, and not all of them have kind of crystallized yet but as far as we understand the so, the story so far um uh, what's what's the um uh, what's the experience been in b- briefly if it's if it's a pro- possible or appropriate to be to be brief about such a wide range of subjects of um the indian experience but also um in terms of specifically what we're talking about um professionally what what what, what difficulties and um and maybe possibilities do you see that it's um, that it's opened up hmm. so i think well of course the the usual parts of the pandemic i mean the pandemic uh, at this point in india seems to be on a growth phase it was arrested by the lockdown but as people have started to move it's slowly picking up and uh, there are a lot of dimensions of uh, joblessness and loss of income and livelihoods and impacts on the economy like the world over that i suspect we'll see in india reverberating over the next couple of years if not longer uh, what i think in terms of specific things that we are talking about one of the things i am very interested in seeing is is access to nature in the city so common spaces wild spaces foraging uh 
is that going to become something that people get much more dependent on? Because as incomes go and you look for non-monetary um, uh, ways of getting, for instance, wild greens or other things to cook with or wood to cook with or you know, um, other parts of nature that you use. I suspect that dependence is going to increase. And uh, so if city planners can figure out a way to respond to that and create some wild spaces or take take the parks, for instance, and make sure that you, you know, just remove the lawn grass, for instance, and uh, let whatever is wild in there grow or actually grow food species, you know, some greens of various kinds that people can come in and take for free. I think that would really help in terms of food security. Uh, I am hopeful that the pandemic will actually open up possibilities of this kind. Definitely, there are a number of citizen groups that are asking for these things. It's a question of whether municipalities will become open to this. And I'm hopeful that the site of this distress can help them become more open. I'm also hopeful about the fact that a lot of the conversations in the media, certainly, and amongst a lot of people that I know who have... So there are two kinds of people who've been affected by the lockdown. One is the largely mental stress issues. So people who have the good fortune of having, you know, roof over your head, money in the bank, food in your stomach. And then there's a lot of mental health issues. So that community is really recognizing the importance of nature and stress relief. And I think this slowdown is forcing you to spend more time with your families, uh, reflect on uncertainties about the future of life, and therefore make you reflect on what's really important for you, what's important for a good life, what's important for feeling of well-being, you know, the healthy life that you were talking about. And I think with that, there's there's hope because before what did you have you had artist imaginations of what would your city look like if it wasn't polluted what would your city look like if the ro if the rivers and the lakes were clean or the birds kept coming back but you don't have to imagine that right we've seen this all of us in two months in the lockdown so much more bird song clear skies clean vistas you know no traffic on the roads more time to spend with your family i think that if we this is the time if we capitalize on this time now we have a, a window of opportunity to reshape a future on the less hopeful side i look at a lot of the government initiatives and i think the government's in a hard spot i mean they have to encourage economic growth and uh, maybe this is a time that makes them more risk averse than ever because what you see is a lot of uh, places uh, allowing for future for uh, more and more industrial projects mining projects and giving them environmental permissions, like railway projects that go through the Western Ghats uh, areas or that go through a protected tiger reserve, uh, road projects, uh, mining projects, a lot of opening up of these places that were formerly inviolate spaces. And uh, so maybe there's that risk averseness in this kind of a you know, really hard environment policy-wise. And so if we can figure that imagination versus uh, risk averseness balance correctly, then we have some hope. If not, we just set back several years. Um, it's really interesting to um, to think about um, uh, the what the the response to the pandemic difficult spot as governments have been as you as you rightly say. Um, what do you think that the response has um, has told us about um, about how we might be able to um, the capacity and the imagination to respond to to climate change in meaningful ways? That is the hard one because I think India is going to be one of the spots definitely that's ground zero for climate change but it's also one of the places that is least prepared in terms of just uh, accepting that climate change is on us now i think we're still because it's a country with so many urgent challenges there are challenges of economy there's challenges of basic survival there are challenges of economic growth and so climate change seems to be in everybody's mind a distant future challenge we'll deal with it in 2050 you know we don't have time to deal with it now and uh, I think, I mean, during the pandemic, we've had two cyclones hit us in the past two weeks, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. And if you look at the the experience of that, I think you can really realize that uh, you can't, uh, climate change is not some abstract future challenge. The one, again, but there's always hope in the middle of this. So the signs of hope is the Fridays for Future movements, the student movements and Extinction Rebellion India and a number of other, there's a South Asia network for uh, climate change action, which is trying to bring together a large network of labor rights groups, human rights groups, activist groups that really say that social justice and climate change have to be interlinked into the way you tackle them. So I think, again, if that builds up, that network builds up and that puts pressure on the state to respond, I think we'll go in, a, in the right direction. 
but that's something the next few years will have to play out because we're really going to be in a in a very difficult situation the the, the coming years uh, it's going to be it's going to be a difficult time for um for everybody i'm I, I i'm sure if there was if there was one thing that you could um if 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 you had a degree of executive um executive power now president or king queen um <laughs> for the for the day if there was one thing that you could change to make a positive impact in the um in the, knowing what we know about what's happened in the immediate um um recent past but also what we think might be coming um the scale of what might be coming what would that what what might that be so one of the things that uh, colleagues of mine and I have been proposing for a while is we have so in India we have a very successful national urban em- uh, rural employment guarantee scheme so the idea is you get 100 days of work guaranteed in the year and use it on whatever kinds of infrastructure development you know, but a lot of it is around green infrastructure if you could have something similar as an urban employment guarantee scheme but really focused on the commons and on ecology and green infrastructure and really thinking from an ecosystem approach not just saying plant you know thousand trees but what kinds of trees restore an ecosystem restore a wetland etc if you could have such an urban employment guarantee scheme which was state funded and got a lot of cities across in small towns across india to restore their lakes restore their rivers restore their canals their wetlands their uh, you know all, all their ecosystems and that would you know that would be just so much bang for the buck reduce air pollution it would increase human health because it would get people out doing things with their hands it would solve the economic problems it would you know you do a lot of things together and some states in india have independently you know started initiatives of similar kinds if there's a way again of getting that catalyzed that's what i would do at least if i was queen for the day I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. If there's anything that we can do to help um, uh, help amplify that message, then um, then 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 really happy to do so. I, I do. I do think that we're in um, we're in a a moment of great opportunity with um, with the dislocation to the old economy that's um, that, that's just happened, and the number of people that are going to be um, that are going to be unemployed, um, and the amounts of money that the governments that governments around the world seem to be contemplating pouring in um, investment in. in in infrastructure we've got a world historic opportunity i think to um to 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 mitigate the worst of the health and well-being effects of that um of those economic shocks and to um and to build out something which will um which will help to uh, insulate us from the worst of the you know the baked in changes that we've already got and um in terms of in terms of climate change um could i then um uh to draw things to um to a close really could, um could i ask you to um to share with uh, with the listeners your three good things so um uh to start with a book or a podcast you think everyone should know about so i was thinking of that one and i'd probably have something a bit different to pick up uh, i don't know if you have read or heard of robin hobb who is one of my all time favorite authors I haven't but one of the great gifts of this podcast has been to um has been to pick pick up new recommendations. Right. So she does a a a series of books. So she's a very very well-known fantasy writer and she writes this entire series of books about um the it's called the Farsia trilogies and there are three trilogies. And that is about a land which uh, so obviously it's a fantasy land but it's a land which essentially is grappling at its core with the return of dragons. and dragons is a common theme in fantasy but the way robin hop talks about dragons is the idea of nature as not something predictable so the world doesn't want dragons because dragons don't care about human beings dragons is nature it's wild it's unpredictable it's difficult sometimes for human beings to live with dragons but why do we want dragons back because that's the world as it should be where human beings are not the most dominant thing in the world and there is nature outside which is wild and beautiful and unpredictable and sometimes uh, beautiful and sometimes tragic but they're just there and they're part of the world so i think in terms of the philosophy though it's a book about something very different but the philosophy of engagement with nature i think these the farsia trilogies they're just great books anyway but the kind of idea they give you of engaging with nature is is something that i think is everybody should look at so i'd love it if people go out and read robin hood I'll be um, I'll be putting a link on there's a really fascinating um parallel there in the way that you've described the underlying philosophy with the way that a recent guest uh, Tony Whitbread talked about um uh the one of the things that needs to be borne in mind with um with calls for rewilding 
okay. that um that creating um places of nature for themselves might not look like how uh, many people think about nature at the moment um <laughs> so it's something there's something to be that, that to be overcome there um wonderful um as i say i'll post a link um could you um let us know someone um someone or a social media account that you think um that you think everyone should know about absolutely so that that one's easy that i'd recommend the nature of cities and the nature of cities has a social media account but it's a collective blog written by a number of writers i'm one of them but it's now i think 300 plus or 400 plus and counting so it's people who write from and about cities across the world and they could be planners architects designers musicians academics anyone writing about cities it's it has a number of articles every week from around the world and it's just it's lovely you really get an idea of nature of cities amazing i'll link to it for sure okay and finally then um your uh, favorite place to immerse yourself in nature and why that's easy for me that's the kaikondrahalli lake that i was talking about which is the lake near my house and uh, it's also because when i moved into this neighborhood in 2005 6 it was this muddy marshy sort of very you know, it was a place and that was really going downhill and uh, full of trash and uh, dead pig carcasses and what have you now it's this beautiful lake restored uh, with community effort maintained with community effort and you see kids playing there and butterflies and birds and some of my most uh, i think dramatic experiences of nature like a bird swooping down um a kite swooping down to the center of the lake picking up a snake and taking it off to the island to eat you know dramatic experiences of experiencing nature in the middle of the city with traffic all around so it's definitely my favorite space also because i've seen it change so much over the years and i've been so closely involved in seeing this and experiencing this change that's wonderful i've not asked this of any guest yet i don't know why but i wonder would you be able to um to email a a photograph of it um so that i could okay. share that on um share that with the uh, with the with the podcast on um, on on our on our yeah, twitter page that would that would be fantastic help help to bring these places alive i must um, i must start doing that from um, from now on harini thank you ever so much for taking some time to um to to uh, to to share your um, share your thoughts on um on 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 karnataka it's um it's it's social and um and and natural history it's been in incredibly informative and and i for one can can see how this as i mentioned earlier can cat should and can start to um start to help inform um conversations around around things that we're doing in um in places much closer to my home so thank you ever so much it's been really rewarding thank you so much we have enjoyed this greatly